Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of OCS Field Guide. Before getting into today's podcast, we want to say a big thank you to all of you who have supported us thus far by telling your friends, liking, sharing, and subscribing to our material. And an even bigger thank you to our new Patreon members who are helping us defray our monthly costs in exchange for some exclusive content and perks. Today we will be continuing our series on the 2017 Neck Pain Clinical Practice Guideline Update covering materials such as differential diagnosis and red flag screening, imaging criteria, and outcome measurement tools related to neck pain. First, let's cover differential diagnosis and red flags. Similar to what we know about low back pain, the CPG states, There are numerous anatomical structures in the cervical region that can be sources of nociception, including the zygoapophyseal joints, vertebra, muscles, ligaments, neural structures, and the intervertebral discs. However, Evidence is lacking to support the hypothesis that these pathoanatomical features are a primary source of mechanical neck pain across the age spectrum in the majority of patients. The source of neck pain symptoms may on occasion be something more serious. Therefore, screening for clinical conditions such as cervical myelopathy, cervical ligamentous instability, fracture, neoplasm, vascular insufficiency, or systemic disease is required, end quote. Unfortunately, the same level of research, such as David presented in the low back pain red flag episode, is not present for a lot of the red flags surrounding these conditions, so much so that the CPG does not even list red flags like how the low back pain CPG does. However, I've pieced together what you should need to know from what they do include and a few resources the CPG refers to. First, we'll discuss cervical myelopathy. The CPG states, clinical tests used in the diagnostic process for cervical myelopathy generally have low sensitivity. Therefore, they should not be used when screening for and diagnosing this condition and that rather, MRI is more useful in determining the diagnosis of cervical myelopathy. While this is true, there is a more sensitive clinical prediction rule derived by Cook et al. in 2010 that is likely useful to know and follow if you are suspecting cervical myelopathy. Though it has not been validated, at the very least, it will help us cover which signs and symptoms to know. The Cook et al. CPR describes Five criteria which include gait disturbance, positive Hoffman's test, positive inverted supinator sign, positive Babinski test, and age over 45 years. Let's repeat that. The Cook CPR describes five criteria which include gait disturbance, positive Hoffman's test, positive inverted supinator sign, positive Babinski test, and age over 45 years. Having one out of five of these criteria was actually very sensitive in their retrospective study, meaning that any patient with cervical myelopathy should have at least one of these criteria, 
But for individuals that have none of these, you can pretty confidently rule out cervical myelopathy. Conversely, having one out of the five does not mean someone has cervical myelopathy. For instance, you obviously don't need to refer out just because your patient is over 45. Though a positive in any of the other tests without a good correlation to an existing diagnosis should probably prompt further investigation. In this retrospective study, where the pretest probability of having cervical myelopathy was around 30%, having three out of five of these criteria has a positive likelihood ratio of 30 and a post-test probability of 94% of having cervical myelopathy, while having four out of five of these criteria had an infinite positive likelihood ratio and a post-test probability of 99%. Next, we'll discuss upper cervical ligamentous instability and cervical arterial insufficiency. Especially before performing manual therapy interventions, orthopedic specialists need to be especially aware of the possibility of these two conditions. However, none of the tests for either of these conditions, including imaging, are very sensitive and thus cannot be used for effective screening of everyone on whom you will perform manual therapy. The CPG thus recommends using the 2012 IFOMPT framework for examination of the cervical region prior to orthopedic manual therapy intervention for a decision-making tree to assess these factors. This will be linked in the show notes and is likely a good document to look through since they mention it specifically a couple of times in the CPG. Rather than read verbatim long lists of risk factors and associated red flags for these two conditions, which could be a waste of time, I'll summarize the overall takeaways and then direct you to pages 13 and 14 of the 2012 IFOMP document for more detailed lists. For upper cervical ligamentous instability, any history that could cause ligamentous or bony damage to the upper cervical spine should be considered a risk factor, such as trauma, which we will explore further in our imaging discussion, congenital collagenous issues like Down syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos, throat infection, inflammatory arthritis conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis, and recent head, neck, or dental surgery. Each of these should be considered risk factors for upper cervical ligamentous instability. Red flags to consider for cervical instability include signs and symptoms such as needing to hold your head up, feeling of instability, severely limited range of motion, or signs of cervical myelopathy. Any of these should clue you into potential upper cervical instability, especially in the presence of some of those risk factors mentioned. For carotid and vertebrobasilar insufficiency, you should look out for a history of issues affecting the cardiovascular and cerebrovascular system, such as high blood pressure, history of transient ischemic attack, clotting disorders, and systemic issues that could cause damage to arteries, such as diabetes and prolonged corticosteroid use. And then you should look out for red flags including any signs of transient ischemic attack or cerebrovascular accident or any of the classic 5Ds and 3Ns, which are dizziness, diplopia, dysarthria, 
drop attacks, dysphagia, nausea, nystagmus, or facial numbness. Now, the CPG doesn't even go into the red flags for any of the other diagnoses mentioned, but I'll remind you of the general red flags that we've already talked about for spinal malignancy, which include previous history of cancer, age over 50, pain not alleviated with rest, failure to improve with conservative management, and unintentional weight loss. Also remember the constitutional signs and symptoms associated with infection, inflammatory or systemic disease, such as fever, elevated heart rate and blood pressure, and fatigue. Next, we'll cover criteria for imaging of the cervical spine. This will also take care of our discussion of fracture red flags, considering cervical spine fractures are almost always related to trauma. You should also note that this is pertinent to our discussion of cervical ligamentous instability and cervical arterial insufficiency, as each of these issues are commonly precipitated by trauma. The CPG states that when stable adult patients present following traumatic onset of neck pain, the Canadian C-spine rules, or the nexus criteria, should be used to decide when imaging is appropriate. These are both important to know. The Canadian C-spine rules consist of a decision-making tree with high-risk factors that indicate immediate decision to perform imaging, low-risk factors that allow for safe range of motion assessment, and finally, a range of motion assessment if the patient is in fact low-risk. The high-risk factors that indicate imaging include, number one, age over 65, two, a dangerous mechanism of injury, which is defined as a fall from greater than or equal to three feet or five steps, an axial load to the head, a motor vehicle accident that was high speed, which is defined as over 62 miles per hour or over 100 kilometers per hour, or being involved in a rollover or ejection accident, or any motorized vehicle accident, or if the patient was struck by a vehicle while riding a bicycle. And the third high-risk factor is having paresthesias in the upper extremities. Any of these three factors leads you to imaging. I'll repeat that. Age over 65, a dangerous mechanism of injury, and paresthesias in the extremities following a traumatic onset of neck pain immediately leads you to imaging. If the patient has none of these high-risk factors, you assess the patient for these following low-risk factors that could allow you to safely assess the patient's range of motion. Number one, if the patient can sit in the emergency department. Number two, if they had a simple rear-end motor vehicle accident. Three, if the patient is ambulatory at any time, four, has had a delayed onset of neck pain, or five, does not have midline cervical spine tenderness. If they do not meet any of these low-risk criteria, you cannot safely assess range of motion and thus must send for imaging. If they do have any one of these factors, you can proceed to assessing range of motion. If the patient is then able to actively rotate the head at least 45 degrees in each direction, 
the patient is classified as low risk and no imaging is required. Now, although the Canadian C-spine rules have the best diagnostic accuracy, the Nexus low-risk criteria are also recommended. These dictate that imaging always be performed after a traumatic mechanism of injury unless the patient meets these five criteria. 1. No posterior midline cervical spine tenderness. 2. No evidence of intoxication. 3. A normal level of cognition, orientation, and alertness. 4. No focal neurologic deficit. And 5. No painful distracting injury. If they meet all of these criteria, imaging is not indicated. Remember, the Canadian C-spine rules and the Nexus criteria are tools to be used to determine the need for imaging specifically after a traumatic mechanism of injury, which means you don't need to refer out for imaging just because your patient is over 65 and has neck pain. But what it does mean is anyone over 65 with a traumatic onset of neck pain should have imaging prior to treatment. Now that we have determined who needs imaging, the CPG recommends using the American College of Radiology appropriateness criteria to determine which type of imaging is most indicated. We'll link this document, which is quite informative, in the show notes, but I'll give you the spoilers. Patients that have met the aforementioned criteria for imaging are typically most indicated for a CT over plain radiographs, because they more reliably identify fractures than plain films. The only exception to this is patients 14 years old and younger, who due to the greater radiation exposure of a CT scan, should just get plain radiographs. That was a lot of information, so let's make this a little more practical and give an example of how the OCS might test this information. Say a 45-year-old female who is a past patient of yours presents direct access to your outpatient orthopedic clinic the day after being involved in a motor vehicle accident. She is wearing a soft collar she was given by a family member, but did not go to the emergency department or see her doctor after the accident. She is alert and oriented. She reports pain in her neck and that she has been trying to keep it still to keep it from hurting more. She also reports that previous PT intervention was very helpful to a previous bout of neck pain that she had, but this neck pain feels different. Which of the following would be the most important information in determining your next step? A. Pain level at 7 out of 10. B. Numbness and tingling in her right upper extremity. C. Positive belief that manipulation will help or D, positive shoulder abduction sign. Questions like this are tricky because your brain will recognize elements of other criteria that you may have learned. Answer A is one of the factors that could indicate a poor prognosis in a patient with traumatic onset of neck pain, but does not tell you anything about what you should do next. Answer C and D are both part of clinical prediction rules that could indicate specific interventions, manipulation, and traction, respectively. However, 
The most important question that must first be answered at this point in time is, is this patient appropriate for physical therapy intervention? The combination of her traumatic mechanism of injury and answer B, numbness and tingling in the right upper extremity, by both the Canadian C-spine rules and the nexus criteria should indicate that the patient should undergo imaging, specifically a CT scan or radiograph. You may be tempted to say that the patient should undergo an MRI due to the neurologic findings. However, in the presence of trauma, CT is always the best way to evaluate for fracture or upper cervical ligamentous instability as a potential source of symptoms, and thus this should be performed first. This covers when to image and how to image for traumatic onset of neck pain. Before we delve into imaging for non-traumatic onset neck pain, I need to go ahead and introduce the neck pain treatment-based classification system. This will be covered in depth in our next episode, but for the time being, here are the four main treatment-based classifications. Number one, neck pain with mobility deficits. Number two, neck pain with movement coordination impairments, which includes patients with whiplash-associated disorder. Three, neck pain with radiating pain. And four, neck pain with headaches or cervicogenic headache. For patients without a traumatic mechanism of injury, those that can be classified as either neck pain with mobility deficits or cervicogenic headache typically are not indicated for imaging in the absence of red flag signs or symptoms. However, For patients whose symptoms classify them as neck pain with radiating pain, the CPG states that patients who have normal radiographs but present with neurologic signs and symptoms should undergo MRI. However, the CPG goes on to say that MRI is the best image to evaluate non-resolving radiculopathy or progressing myelopathy, which does seem to leave some room for a trial of treatment in the presence of cervical radiculopathy, as long as there is not progressive neurologic deficit. To sum all that up, you pretty much only need to refer for imaging of the cervical spine when the patient presents with a traumatic mechanism of injury, clear neurologic signs or symptoms, or in the presence of some concerning red flags. Finally, we'll cover the outcome measures. The CPG mentions a few different outcome measurement tools, but the 2017 update takes the time to mention that the Neck Disability Index is by far the most extensively studied outcome measurement tool over the range of neck pain conditions. So it's safe to say you should just worry about knowing the NDI. The NDI should be easy to remember because it is very similar to the ODI. It is a 10-item questionnaire where each item is rated 0 to 5, where the higher number indicates higher disability. And the score can be doubled to indicate a percentage of function. 0 to 4 points, or 0 to 8%, indicates no disability. 5 to 14 points, or 10 to 28%, indicates mild disability. 15 to 24 points, or 30 to 48%, indicates moderate disability. 
25 to 34 points, or 50 to 64 percent, indicates severe disability, and 35 to 50 points, or 70 to 100 percent, indicates complete disability. The MDC and the MCID for the NDI are both considered to be 5 points, or 10 percent, which, thankfully, is the same as the ODI. That wraps up this episode of OCS Field Guide. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the articles and documents mentioned in the episode, and be on the lookout for our next episode over the neck pain treatment-based classifications. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.